welcome. Thank you all for being here. I would ask you to come closer, but you shouldn't. (laughs) Um, The last time Yez met in this room, I was sitting in this seat. So I've been here. How have you all been? Um, I think the first stay-at-home order was March 19th, so today is the 28-month anniversary. So uh, that happened. Um, And we're still in it. So thank you all for being here. And I think coming here, things can be very acute. To, to finally bring you here. And uh, do you know what a black box is? Does everyone know what a black box is? Like on a plane? So like, plane crashes, and they go through the wreckage and they get the black box. And then they find out what the pilots were all saying so they can diagnose what happened. And then there's that line like, why don't they make the whole plane out of the black box? Um, which I love because it would probably cost a trillion dollars and it would still kill people if it crashed. But, The reason I love that is because I think Buddhism is actually the religious equivalent of why can't the whole plane be the black box? Like, why can't the whole religion just be about the one thing that matters? Which for us is the fact that we're all going to die. And for some reason, we know that. And that's insane. That should haunt you. I mean, that should shake you to your core that that's a reality for all of us, that everyone's carrying around and also that everyone's just kind of trying to pretend it's not the case. But I think when you finally get to a place like this, uh, it's when that's not really working. It's when there's this idea that there's this me who persists through time, but at some time will no longer be. Or there's a me who persists through time, yet it also can change into somebody having a very difficult time in the future, right? There's this suffering thing. So suffering and death in Buddhism are very intertwined. They're used kind of interchangeably. Because we have this ability to think we're solid and real, but also to think that we can change into something else. And the tension between those two is actually what causes this kind of existential discomfort that we're always carrying because they actually can't both be true at the same time. And so life gets very confusing. And so I'm here to tell you that I really meant what I said when I said that reality is a gift and that freedom from thought is actually what the Buddha meant when he talked about liberation. I'm talking about the kind of thinking that turns things into things. And so this is maybe going to get a little far out. But um, 
I'm working with this new model. I used to try and figure out the way in which everything doesn't exist because this famous teaching of Buddhism is the teaching of no self and that nothing really exists the way we think it does. And so I used to think, oh, my job is to find out how things don't exist. But I'm experiencing an extreme shift right now where it's not the case that nothing exists. It is the case that everything exists all at once. And it doesn't exist as the thing you think it is until your consciousness actually carves it out of the whole and brings it forward. That actually that bell over there did not exist as a bell until I referred to it as a bell and then thought of it as a bell. Does that make sense? So everything is like that. Everything is happening all at once and it's not what you think it is until you think it is what you think it is. And that goes for yourself. So all you are is this kind of carving mechanism that carves reality up and you also carve yourself out of the whole and then feel, uh, understandably, lonely, uh, separating yourself from everything that you're sort of inextricably linked with at all times. And when we meditate and are completely free of the functioning of that mechanism, that sort of mental carving up of everything, that is actually freedom. And it's also freedom uh, from, in my experience, it's also freedom from the fear of death or the fear of annihilation because that is, that brings the understanding that Yes, this specific form of carving up reality that calls itself Brian will cease at some point. But that's not a real person doing that. It's just a function of the whole, which is eternal and infinite. It's a way the eternal and infinite makes itself temporal and finite. And for some reason, it's happening now. And it'll stop happening in the future. But uh, you have always existed and you will never die is the reality of the way everything is. I think a lot of people around here are in the tech world, in the STEM world. I think you all know matter and energy can't be created and can't be destroyed, which means whatever you are, can't be created and it can't be destroyed. It only experiences this constant change. And our practice for that is this practice of giving up the type of thinking that turns things into discrete entities. We give it up as a practice. You can't give it up forever because we have to take care of each other. So that's the most important part. And so that's 
the way the, what we call the bodhisattva vow sort of enters in this function. This isn't about escaping the function forever. It's about vowing to willingly participate in it for the sake of helping others find the same perspective of understanding that it's not really happening the way it seems to be happening. And there's a nice little list of six things that I like to, that I'm practicing with now. A, our generosity, kindness, patience, enthusiasm, equanimity, and wisdom. And wisdom just is learning from your practice and paying attention to your experience. And so I think of the Bodhisattva vow as actually willfully participating in this function of me pretending you are who you want me to think you are and you pretending I am who I think I am uh, for the sake of being that type of presence in the world for everyone who sorely needs it, actually. Kindness, patience, equanimity, wisdom, And I think the more you can let go of that type of thinking, again, have the experience of letting reality just function on its own without needing it to be any specific thing or even without creating the thing that your mind thinks it is, that really loosens up your hold on it when you do go back to interacting with it so that you can have some space to know, uh, am I having an impulse away from generosity or away from kindness or away from patience? And then you can be generous and kind and patient with those impulses, but you can also transform that energy or turn that energy because you're much more familiar with this carving function that we're all doing. And I thought of all that very recently, and I really thought it was like brand new. And then I randomly today was reading a book that I read like 15 years ago uh, by a teacher named Brad Warner, and he said the exact same thing. So I guess it lodged in somewhere and then pretended it was original in my mind. But here's how he puts it. Buddhists don't postulate something called consciousness that sits there twiddling its thumbs until something steps in front of it to be conscious of. Consciousness is just what happens when the stuff we call mind interacts with the stuff we call matter. To conceive of it, in a, any, to conceive of it any other way is an illusion. The brain operates by carving up the world into little pieces. He even used the word carving. <laughs> anyway. The brain operates by carving up the world into little pieces, each with its own name and form. We imagine that things can be separated from their environment 
and while we may move around, we are always here, wherever here might be. We are never truly separated from our surroundings. So when you give something a name and imagine it has a specific form, you're really only offering your brain a handy reference point to work with. The real world does not operate that way. Reality is not a bunch of individual things sitting around on top of some other thing called the universe. There is only one continuous and undivided whole stretching on through infinite space and infinite time. Our brains carve this up into bite-sized chunks that we can manipulate. But this manipulation we do in our heads is just a very poor model of what actually happens. That's why nothing ever goes according to plan, no matter how carefully you plan it out. Every action affects the entire universe in ways both obvious and subtle that we cannot possibly work into our calculations. So, uh, he's a teacher I respect a lot, so it's not surprising that I've trained myself to think just like him. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't have much more to say. I did have some, let's see. I did have some idea, this thought of uh, the perfect life the other way. Sorry, I got so morbid at the beginning. That's just what came out. The other way I thought of it was not just that we know we're going to die, but also that we can conceive of the perfect life and we can also recognize the perfect life we don't currently have, that we get those two things also together. And the cruel irony is that they can only exist together. That if you actually had the perfect life, you would be unable to conceive of a different option because it would already be, you couldn't, you'd already, you've already hit the ceiling. So um, the only way, <laughs> To even live. Also, I think if you were actually offered the perfect life, you would reject it immediately because it would be supremely boring and you would have absolutely nothing to live for. But thankfully, we're not in that situation. We're here and our, for our way of participating in what I call the perfection of reality is that we actually carve it up into something that we can then assess as totally imperfect. That's actually how the perfection of reality functions through us, is that we have the ability to think that things aren't actually perfect. And similarly, the only way we can experience eternity is to experience it as this present moment. We carve the present moment out of eternity, and then, then we can actually interact with it. That's the only way. But this moment is all of eternity right now. In fact, it's beyond eternity. We can only think in terms of space and time, which is kind of a really puny way of understanding things. Um, and... It's really interesting. We can't even conceive of a way of being that's beyond thought because we need minds to conceive of them. So, um, again, it's a very limited way of understanding the world, but it happens to also be who we are. And so I think Zen is this amazing... 
I don't want to say dance or play because those words are used too much, but it's a way of holding all of that at the same time. That what is well beyond our understanding is completely functioning as our understanding. And I'll end there. So I think we go into groups.